0: So for those of you that are uh, regular attenders here, you know we've been following the lectionary readings designed for for Protestant churches both in the United States and Canada uh, that are really meant to coordinate with the Christian calendar uh, and give congregations a three-year cycle of weekly lessons for pastors to preach from, uh, mainly so we don't get stuck on preaching just our own favorite themes uh, or maybe just our ideological favorites. Uh, And that's a good thing. It's good to have a system uh, and a plan to approach the systematic reading of Scripture. But no plan is perfect. Uh, and in my humble opinion, today's lectionary readings is where the uh, the writers kind of really messed up big time. Uh, because today's lesson takes us to the Sermon on the Mount uh, and leaves me with this huge section of teaching to cover in just this tiny little under-30-minute window we have together. Uh, and I don't think it's anywhere near enough time to approach what has been called the most sublime teaching ever offered to man. Uh, And so we're not going to do that. (laughs) We're not going to follow the lectionary for a little while. We're going to break it up into some more manageable bites, uh, take it a few pieces of time, a few pieces at a time, over the next few weeks, uh, and then head back into the lectionary sometime during the Lenten season. But let's look at our assigned lesson for today, which is coming from what gospel? Matthew, Matthew 5. And we're going to start digging into it. I hope you have your own Bibles that you open up in front of you. Uh, Matthew 5, I'm going to be reading you the first 12 verses. So listen for the Spirit of God. And seeing the crowds, he, meaning Jesus, went up to the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in spirit, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord to us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, as your your word has been read and heard, we ask you, Lord, to apply it to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Uh, that we might receive it with joy father receive the joy of the blessing of all you have for us this morning and we ask it in jesus name amen and so uh, this sermon of jesus that i just read to you picks up right where we left off in in, last week in matthew chapter 4 with our lord's calling of his first disciples you know there's those two sets of brothers uh, peter and his brother andrew uh, and then james and his brother john and we saw how when they began to follow Jesus, the scripture tells us that uh, he went through all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria. uh, And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan until we get to today's reading where Jesus sees this massive crowd, like huge crowd, like every seat full, like we have this morning, right? And he decides to address them. And by extension, to address us in all the places that we need to be addressed the most. And in all those issues that go right to the heart of what it means not only to live in community with others, but in communion with God. And so Jesus finds himself a place to sit, which may sound kind of odd to us, because I don't know about you, but if I were to address a large crowd spread out all over the landscape, I think I'd probably stand up. But like everything else that our Lord did, there was a reason. And he sat down because that was the position from which the rabbis taught in the synagogues. And so if you go into a synagogue service in the first century, the, the scripture lesson would be read, and then the teacher for the day would take his seat on a raised dais and he'd give the lesson. And so that's what Jesus is modeling today. And so right from the outset, our Lord is very self-consciously and intentionally asserting the authority of his teaching in giving us the Beatitudes. And don't let that word throw you off. Beatitude just simply means supremely blessed or happier than. Right. So we, we, could, read, we could have read them... Uh, happier are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, happier are those who mourn, for they'll be comforted, and so on. And these beatitudes, these happier thans, found in Matthew 5, are not mere words of advice for just Jesus' original audience. They are, as one commentator said, they are the words of life meant for believers at all times and in all places. So that includes us. And they begin with, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said of this, it's not surprising that this beatitude is the first because it is obviously the key to all that follows. And he continues, there is beyond any question a very definite order in these. Our Lord does not place them in their respective positions haphazardly or accidentally. There is what we may describe as a spiritually logical sequence to be found here. Because there is no one in the kingdom of God who is not first poor in spirit. There's no one in the kingdom of God that's not first poor in spirit. So he's saying uh, here that being poor in spirit is a fundamental Christian characteristic of being a true Christian. And all the other characteristics are, in a sense, a result of that one. Meaning, brothers and sisters, that genuine Christian life starts with the coming to an end of oneself. It's the realization of our utter dependence on God. And and Dr. Lloyd-Jones goes on here in the quote to say, we cannot be filled until we are first empty. And we won't be raised up until we're first pulled down. And so our Lord begins with poor in spirit. And I don't want you to hear this verse. He didn't say, blessed in spirit are the poor. Okay, Being poor does not in and of itself Make a person blessed in spirit. I don't know about you, but I've met plenty of uh, poor folks who were bitter and mean. Right? Uh, felt the world owed them something. I worked with a few folks like that. Felt like it gave them license to take things from the business that weren't theirs just because somebody else had more. But scripture is very clear on this issue. Leviticus nine fifteen says, "Be honest and just when you make decisions in legal cases. This is to judges. Do not show favoritism to the what, or fear the rich." right? Exodus 23:3 says, do not favor the poor simply because they're poor. And yes, obviously, don't mishear me, a huge part of ministry in the gospel is to alleviate the suffering of those living in need. But Jesus is not saying that people that live in poverty are especially blessed. This verse has nothing to do with, whatsoever with the size of a person's bank account. Now, what Jesus is doing here in this beatitude is giving a juxtaposition between two ideas that he places side by side as a way of highlighting their opposites. And brothers and sisters, the opposite of poor in spirit that Jesus is intending to comment on here is pride. Right? The opposite of poor in spirit is pride. If you are prideful, guys, you're not poor in spirit. Uh, and then ultimately you aren't happy or blessed in this world or in the next. It's why Psalm 10, verse 4 says, In the pride of his face the wicked does not seek after God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. Proverbs 8:13 says, Pride and arrogance and the way of evil I hate. Proverbs 16:18, a really familiar one. Says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Uh, and I know it's not really popular, it's not very PC statement to make. Uh, But guys, there are things that God hates, and the truth is God hates pride. God hates the sin of pride. That's why uh, in in our Sunday school lesson this morning, uh, James 4, 6, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And, And right there, brothers and sisters, in that verse is the key. It's grace. It's grace. Being poor in spirit is not something that a person is naturally. It goes back to the idea of being emptied to be filled, being torn down to be built up, and that takes the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, which is the touchstone of the whole new covenant message that Jesus came to bring. Uh, And it shows us, guys, we can't do this on our own. And that, that's okay. It's okay to realize that. So that's what made this whole message of Jesus so astounding to his audience, because that's what they were trying to do, right? They were trying to live out God's laws all in their own human effort. Uh, And that's just not possible. So the people carried around this incredible burden that they were stubbornly determined to shoulder on their own and carry this nagging guilt that they're constantly trying to power through in their own strength. And the only thing they ever accomplished, the only thing they ever ended up with, uh, was trying to fool themselves and each other with ever more clever acts of religious gymnastics to prove just how great they really were. Uh, and giving evidence to their own failure to keep the law, which should have made them humble, but that by and large only made them arrogant hypocrites. (coughs) Excuse me. Think about it like this for a minute. Put, Put yourself in their place, in one of those first century hearers. And just imagine the pressure of walking into church right now, knowing you've got to follow hundreds of rules perfectly, and everybody's watching you. And you know inside that you're not perfect. And let's be honest, everybody else around you knows you're not perfect either, right? Uh, But you really, really need everyone else to think that you are. Even the people that are closest to you, especially the people that are closest to you. Talk about pressure. That's the mindset going through the people in Jesus' time. Those folks that were following after him were expected by their leaders, and they expected themselves to live uh, according to a collection of 613 laws that they had extracted from the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Most folks can't even keep the Ten Commandments, let alone 613 extra laws. And they defined their faith by how perfectly they could keep the minute details of each one to say nothing of all the the endless stipulations and caveats that the overzealous religious leaders added to each of those commandments uh, to increase their perceived righteousness. And then here comes Jesus saying, Uh, it's okay to realize that you're not really okay. And not only that, but in fact, that is the place where genuine healing starts. Now, now for us today, um, you and I probably don't feel quite as constrained by those laws, uh, by those commandments uh, and the regulations that the Orthodox Jews did and still do. But, you know, just like those religious leaders, we can often be tempted to measure our righteousness by our rule following. Until for many folks, biblical teaching can represent countless opportunities to fail or to fall short, until we're either tempted to ignore God's standards, uh, knowing that we're not going to measure up, or we cling to them to try to earn God's favor. And Jesus comes today challenging both of those extremes. And in the words of one commentator said, "In, in this, the Sermon on the Mount offers a path forward that holds on to high standards without tying our status to them. See, that holds on to high standards without tying our status. Then, because rather than presenting a new list of rules to follow, the Sermon on the Mount is an invitation to the very heart of God. As Jesus gently moves us from shallow reading of things that we should do under the true fulfillment of the law, moving us from external indicators into an eternal perspective. And brothers and sisters, that perspective starts... And focuses on the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and not with ourselves. Because you see, you know, just living, just living with regret, or just living with depression, or just living with self-loathing, or just being down in the dumps and down on yourself, uh, is not the kind of genuine poor in spirit that Jesus is talking about. Right? Uh, everybody you see moping around in metaphorical sackcloth and ashes is not really doing it to repent. Right? Uh, it's not always real genuine poverty and spirit sometimes in fact many times it's all phony artifice and a mere performance that actually carries with it one of the most insidious forms of human pride and it's so well disguised you might not recognize it at first but let me set the picture for you this is what it looks like Uh, this is that friend you have that just can't wait to tell you the most terrible things that just happened to them Uh, this is that couple in the park that would only be too willing and eager to host their own pity party Uh, Or the neighbor who's the heroine of their own melodrama, right? And why is that prideful, you might ask? It's prideful because what those folks are really doing is looking for a backhanded way to have others elevate them. To have folks pity them. And to be able to go around maybe not saying it out loud, but heavily inferring that they're just too sweet and too nice and too special for anything unpleasant to ever happen to them. And that's pride. That's not poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is a godly sorrow for your sins that just wrecks you before the unmerited favor of God. And that, brothers and sisters, can only be gifted by the Holy Spirit. Because being poor in spirit is not something you can become by effort. It's not something you become by a decision. You can't wake up one day and say, okay, today I'm going to be poor in spirit. Uh, There's no 10-step program to make you poor in spirit. It's the result of the work of God's spirit in a person's life, and there's no kind of shortcut that's going to get you there. That's why the Apostle Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Uh, And hey, he sure learned that lesson, didn't he? The Apostle Paul, as the man of God who got quite literally knocked off his high horse in the middle of his self-directed efforts at righteousness. uh, Listen to how he describes it himself in Philippians 3. He says, "Uh, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. He says, boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He says, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. the power of his resurrection, and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, that is a miracle on par with the resurrection from the dead. I mean, yes, we have the blessed future hope of our actual physical resurrection into a body like the body of our Lord Jesus, but for now, the regeneration of your individual stone-dead heart into a heart that loves Christ and that loves his kingdom is every bit of rebirth from the dead. But listen again to how the Apostle John, who was actually present to hear this Sermon on the Mount, describes it. He says in 1 John chapter 4, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. And He says this is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and send his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. And you see, there's an amazing truth here that God initiated the relationship with us. You see, that's the exact opposite of what religion teaches, right? R- religions start with the, the prideful assumption and premise that we have to initiate the relationship with God and then do all the kind of stuff we need to do to earn God's favor. Uh, it, it says, I want to be in control of this relationship. I, I want to be the one to choose to come to God when I choose to come to God. Because human ego always seeks some reason, some merit that commends ourselves to him. But brothers and sisters, the exact opposite is true. Because brothers and sisters, if you were in Christ, and if I have in Christ, we are not any smarter. We are not any more holy. We are not any more extra special than anyone else out in this world. But rather the Bible says we are spiritually reborn, not as the result of anything in nature or of our own personal decision, but solely on account of God's sovereign prerogative. The Bible says in John chapter 1, these people didn't become God's children in a physical way from a human impulse or from a husband's desire to have a child. They were born from God. And although God hates sin, his love for sinners is absolute. And that's why Paul says in Romans 5, 8, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. Right? We've heard that verse so much, I don't think it shocks us anymore, but that's shocking. Right? God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. That's pretty amazing love. But we already know that because 1 John 4 tells us that God is love. And that love is the very essence of God. It's not this, that God feels love. It's not just that he does loving things, because he certainly does. But the very nature of God is love. Love doesn't exist apart from him. We can't imagine a love like that. And it's why the apostle Paul prayed that his readers would just be able to begin to wrap their minds around this kind of love. That's why he writes in Ephesians 3, he says, then Christ will make his home in your hearts. As you trust in him, your roots will grow down deep into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand as all God's people should, how wide how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully, and then you'll be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. And you know, just like we've been saying the last couple of weeks, that's because Jesus, you know, had to do more than just die for us. He had to live for us. And God sent his son so that we could live. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live Through him, and as Jesus rose from the dead, he offers not only to forgive our sins, but he also offers to give us eternal life. That's why he said in in, in John chapter three, let's read it together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent his son not into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Amen. And a genuine awareness of our poverty of spirit is the evidence that that kind of spiritual rebirth has taken place. It's not the feeling you have to work up in advance to get to, but rather it's the proof. It's the fruit. It's the demonstration that God has done a work in your life. And that's why, you know, just by the way, when people, people sometimes come to me and say, you know, pastor, I'm not sure I'm really saved. Right? I don't feel like God still loves me. Or So, Pastor, is it possible I've done something to lose my salvation? I can usually always say to them, not always, but usually, no, I have a feeling you're more on track than you may think. Because only genuine, copper-bottomed, uh, biblical poverty of spirit generates those kind of questions. Questions that let me know that they're beginning to care less and less about self and more and more about Christ. Uh, it's the folks that never ask those questions that I worry about. Uh, because authentic sorrow for sin is the furthest thing from their mind. Uh, would never even occur to them. And so theirs is not the kingdom of heaven, whether they're consciously aware of it or not. Uh, And very likely leaves many of those folks that never asked those kind of questions in the lineup that will hear Christ's chilling words from Matthew 7 when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Which brings us back this morning right where we started. Uh, Not with the meticulous keeping of the tenets of Torah law, but with a humble submission to the new covenant, to the royal law, the divine commands of King Jesus as he begins to lay them out, in this most sublime of all sermons, in this Sermon on the Mount, overwhelming us with the wideness of his grace, the relentless nature of his love, and the gentleness and poverty of spirit that are the hallmarks of those steadily traveling the road to sanctification, the one, brothers and sisters, that leads to our heavenly reward. Are you headed there? Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for uh, this beautiful message of the Beatitudes. Be with us, Lord, in the the weeks ahead as we break them out one at a time, asking you to lend your Holy Spirit to enlighten us. But Father, uh, help us to start out with this one, to recognize in ourselves by the, uh, the use of your Spirit, whether we are uh, poor in spirit, whether we're uh, prideful, Lord, and trying to seek this Christian life on our own, or whether we're submitted to you, uh, trusting in your Holy Spirit to work in and through us. And so, Father, be with us this week and write this lesson on our hearts and teach us all that you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen.